Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base cellular trail camera connected by the Moultrie Mobile app. Moultrie Mobile's industry-best app gives you complete control over your camera settings, up-to-the-minute updates from the field, and other interactive scouting tools on your smartphone or computer. Features like weather forecast, advanced species recognition, interactive maps, and a whole lot more. For more information and to make your purchase, visit www.moultriemobile.com. Today we're going to talk turkey hunting, but instead of picking a particular topic and doing a deep dive on it, we're going to keep this one more high level. There are a lot of guys who are just getting into turkey hunting, have been late the last couple of years, and apart from being able to watch videos online, might not necessarily know what they might be doing right or wrong, or what gear is seen as essential versus just nice to have versus gimmicky. Some of the topics and items I'll cover might seem pretty basic to experienced turkey hunters, but some of it is stuff I didn't even realize, figure out, or learn until several years of doing it, and wish I had you know, a similar type of guide at that point in time. Before we dive in, a quick message about Spartan Forge. The app is available on the Apple App Store and Google Play. A huge feature is the Intel tab, which allows hunters to view the upcoming detailed forecast in an area, including temperature, pressure, wind, moon data, but it also provides the proprietary deer movement prediction algorithm. Instead of simply stating whether or not it'll be a good day or a bad day to hunt, the app predicts the type of movement most likely based on the conditions, whether it's core area movement, transition, or full range daylight activity. You can use that information to help inform your hunt. The app also has a built-in journaling feature and a fully featured map which you can use to e-scout and navigate in the field, view property boundaries, place and manage waypoints, and view multiple different types of imagery. Use the code DIY for a 25% discount on a Spartan Forge membership. And with that, let's dive into the episode. Alright, so to start off here, let's just briefly talk about what turkeys are doing kind of throughout the course of the year, but I guess more so the course of most turkey seasons. So in the winter and then into early spring, turkeys will still generally be in large flocks and they're going to be like that until they start to eventually get to a point in the early spring where they start to break up into smaller and smaller groups. And then eventually as spring keeps going on further, even those small groups will start to break up even further. So if you're watching TV and you're seeing a turkey hunt where they have, let's say it's like a Nebraska hunt and you see like 50 turkeys all in one field together. That's very likely an early season turkey hunt. And in some states, the season's aren't even going to open up early enough to where you have that type of opportunity. And it might seem really great in theory, but the thing you got to remember is too, that if you have a really large flock of turkeys, that means you got a big congregation in one area, but that if you're not in that one area where the birds are, it's going to be like a dead zone. So as the spring progresses and those birds start to break up a little bit more, then you start to get them scattered more across different properties and, and different public pieces. And you're more likely to run into a bird at any given place, as opposed to it just being dead, dead, dead. Then you find the mother load like it is in some of those really early seasons. It seems like for me, when I turkey hunt in at least what around here is considered an early season hunt, which would be like mid to late April. A lot of times I'm seeing groups of birds where you might have, let's say like four or five hens and like two or three toms together, um, or maybe there's a Jake in the group, uh, but it's usually not a really big flock and it's usually not just singles at that point in the year either. And as you go throughout the month of May and you get into late May, and again, this is based off of upper Midwest down South, be totally different time frame. When it gets late season here, then the birds start to break up a lot of times even more. We'll have maybe like a group of jakes that you'll see running around, four or five jakes, uh, or you might have a couple of hens. You might see a lot of lone hens. 
you might see some lone toms and you also see toms that are, you know, basically bouncing back and forth between their hens. Uh, but it's less common, it seems like in the later season, to have like two or three toms all set up in the same spot together, although it does happen. So that's just something to keep in mind as you're planning your turkey hunting season is that the dynamic of what they're doing changes throughout the course of the spring. And, you know, if you're going early, then you might be able to leverage some of the, the pecking order stuff that's going on that time of the year. And later in the season, there's much less of that going on at that point. And the birds pretty much know where they're, where they're at in the hierarchy. By that point in time, some of the birds have probably been killed too. And you're going to have to do a better job of sort of reading the uh, particular bird's body language and knowing how it might respond to either aggressive or, or passive hunting styles. And then the, the next thing that we'll go over is turkeys kind of throughout the day. Now, this is probably going to seem pretty obvious for maybe a lot of people who have turkey hunted quite a bit. But again, going back to basics, turkeys spend their nights in trees. They'll fly up, they'll spend the night in, you know, what we call a roost tree. And then first thing in the morning, usually in kind of that gray light period, they'll, you know, at sometimes seemingly pretty early, like right before sunrise, or a lot of times a little bit after sunrise, they'll fly down to the ground and spend just about the rest of the day on the ground. And then late in the evening, they'll go back and fly up and roost trees again. And what they do between the point in time where they fly down and they fly back up again, a lot of times once they first hit the ground, they're going to, in many cases, not move too far from that initial fly down location. Uh, they might, birds might go through a strut zone and that strut zone might be, you know, on the same ridge that the birds basically had flown down from, or it might be a, a ways. It might be several hundred yards. Uh, sometimes birds will go right to field edges, if they're, especially if they're roosting really close to a field, they might fly right down and land on that field, uh, especially in ag country where you have like tree rows and things like that. It could be very common for a bird to fly right down directly to the field. But if you're in, say, a bigger hill country, then you might have birds that'll roost on the end of a point, not, you know, totally unlike what we talk about when deer are betting on points. Uh, they'll fly down and maybe the top of that ridge is nice and open and a bird can sit there and strut back and forth on that ridge and be visible to hens around them. And as the morning goes on, there's a lot of breeding activity that can occur throughout the spring. And... It usually seems like it peaks, you know, from basically fly down through kind of that mid-morning period. Once you get to that mid-morning period, and this is especially true the later you get into the season, you'll start to get hens that will leave toms that they're with and go off to their nests to tend the nest for a bit. And this can be one of the more vulnerable times for a tom is if he loses whatever hens he's with, then at that point he's going to try and find more. So he might start gobbling. So if you're out there, you know, 11 a.m. and you haven't heard anything really all morning, it's been pretty dead since the fly down, and all of a sudden you hear a tom start gobbling on his own at 11 a.m., there's a very good likelihood that he's just lost his hens and he's trying to attract some more, and that can be a very vulnerable gobbler that is callable. And as you get into that afternoon period, a lot of times it seems like things start to slow down a little bit. You can absolutely still call one in in the afternoon, but it seems like as a general rule compared to the morning, there's a little bit less gobbling action and you see more birds spending time at like dust bowl locations, 
which a lot of times are little sandy locations like on the edge of a field. And they're really easy to find. You hear the word dust bowl. That's exactly what it looks like. Uh, it's just a you know, little circular area that is a place where the birds will basically drop down into and, and get dust all on their feathers and start shaking it all around. So they'll spend time in places like that. They'll also spend time in fields. You can, A lot of times if you have agriculture around, you can sit on a field edge and kind of throughout the course of the afternoon and, and really a lot of the day, just sit there and watch and periodically you'll have birds kind of enter and leave the field throughout that day. So it, I know it can be more of a, a boring technique, but if you have not too much land to roam and you have ag fields and you know historically the birds have gone out in those fields, then a somewhat high odds strategy can be to just, you know, sit on the edge of that field for as long as you're able to, to put up with. And eventually there's a, a good chance you're going to get an opportunity. So certainly one way to do it, not the only way by any means, uh, but it's one of those occasions where you need to kind of know what your landscape is like and what you have access to. And that can be a great time to pull something off in the afternoon. Uh, I feel like in the bigger wood settings, afternoons, they can be more challenging just because it seems like in general, the birds aren't as vocal in the afternoons as they are in the mornings or midday. In turkey hunting, we have a saying that is, you know, roosted means roasted or the converse, which is roosted does not mean roasted. And what that's talking about is a strategy of turkey hunting where you'll basically locate a tom in the evening before when he flies up to roost. And then you sneak in there the next morning, well before light and get set up as close to that gobbler as possible to try and be able to call him in right off the roost and be able to shoot him. And if you can pull that off, it basically means that your hunt is over, you know, right around sunrise or not too long thereafter, but it can be a lot harder than it sounds. You know, if we look at this from a deer hunting perspective and you're like, man, if I knew exactly where that deer was better today, I feel like I got a really good job of, you know, pulling off a successful hunt. But it seems like those birds have a really good tendency of not doing exactly what you'd expect them to do. And oh, so often you have a bird pretty much pinpointed in his roost location. You go set up on him and he'll fly down and go the opposite way, regardless of whether or not you may have called to him. But as a general rule of thumb, when you're trying to roost birds in the evening, it's always good to triangulate a position, meaning if you can get a bird to gobble while standing in one location, if you then move to a different location, you can get them to gobble again. You can draw lines toward the direction where you heard that sound and be able to triangulate the position from the two points that you were standing at when you heard that bird. And it seems like in my observations, a lot of times you'll get birds that will in hill country bet on points. And a lot of times in ag country, if you have really big trees alongside a field, they like to bet in those. Uh, generally, if you have big trees that have big horizontal branches, those can be really good opportunities for, you know, roost trees. A lot of times around here, we'll have white pines that birds just love to roost in because they're not super dense in terms of conifers. And they have those good horizontal branches and oak trees. You'll see them roosting a lot of times as well. And when you're scouting, even some of these areas are walking through them deer hunting. You might be able to find trees that have a bunch of feathers underneath and and you can see, you know, turkey scratching and you can tell like, oh, okay, this is probably a roost area right here. And you can mark that some areas, especially if there's a lot of roost tree options available, the birds might move around and bounce from roost location to roost location, just based on any given day. And there's other locations where it seems like almost like clockwork, 
they'll end up in the exact same set of trees, especially if they have really good uh, security in those trees and never get harassed. Uh, for instance, we have some smaller pieces of public that I've turkey hunted quite a bit, not too far from me. And the challenge with this particular area is that the places where you can hunt and the places where you can't hunt are all kind of, you know, very similar habitat, but the private land basically juts in and juts out, juts in and juts out in this hill country area. And so these birds will, I think, just naturally roost on any given like point or an area where they feel comfortable. But then if they get harassed or hunted in some of these spots and they go try a different one and eventually get to these little pockets where it's on private land or it's in an area of public where you really can't access because of the private land surrounding it. And they just don't get harassed as much in those areas. And so they end up spending almost every day for, you know, the latter half of the season roosting in those same areas. And that can make it pretty tough. And that's, I guess, for me, one of the reasons I've started to really value some of the bigger pieces of public land where you have a lot of area to roam. And if you find a bird, there's not a very high likelihood that he's going to wander off on a private, or you might be attempting to try and call a bird off a private, which can be challenging. And that if you locate one, you can basically go after him. And if you spook him, you can still maybe have a chance of getting on him later in that same day. In terms of the actual strategies to get a bird to gobble when you're roosting at night, I would say by far the most common would be a barred owl hoot. And there's plenty of YouTube videos demonstrating how to do uh, like an eight note barred owl hoot, as well as just some ad additional owl sounds that, that you can make to, that sound number one, realistic, but also are loud enough to get a bird to shot gobble. The barred owl laughing seems like it's usually the one that if you do get one to gobble, that's what they'll gobble at as opposed to just like the standard eight note. But there's certainly times they'll gobble at just that standard eight note as well. And there's other times where it seems like you can throw the kitchen sink at them and they will not make a peep. Other calls that are not as popular as the owl hooter, but can still be pretty useful would be the coyote howler. Uh, Shane is the one who, Shane Simpson turned me on to using a coyote howl at the evening roost and has had a lot of success with that. I've had it work for me as well. And another one that I've seen work in certain areas and not others. And so some of this might be regional specific would be a goose call. Uh, if you get a goose call, it has that nice, loud, high pitched tone on the second half of the note that a lot of times will get birds to shot gobble as well. And a bald eagle cackle I've noticed in certain locations also gets birds to gobble. So it, just keep an open mind and open ear. If you hear something in a certain location that birds will gobble at, make a note of that because it might not be something that they gobble at all over the world, but in those certain locations, if that's something that they gobble at, whether it's an individual bird specific thing, or if it's just regional preferences, uh, if you can replicate that, you're probably going to have a, a better opportunity than some guys just trying the, you know, standard off the shelf, you know, barred owl hooting and, and getting the same result. So let's say you get a bird roosted that night before and you got a good triangulated position, you know exactly where that bird is set up. Then you have to plan your next morning's hunt. And usually the way to do that is just look at your map and figure out a way that you can access in there in order to set up to where you think the birds are likely to go. It might be a Tom that's all by himself. It might be 
a couple of male birds. It could be a, you know Tom and Jake's. There could be hens in that group as well, especially depending on what time of year it is. And that can all modify what those birds are going to do once they fly down. But this is one of those times where if you have done some scouting ahead of time and you know where the birds generally show up like mid-morning, like if they end up hitting some private field that you drive past and you see them in there over almost every morning, then you figure out where they're roosting. It's like, okay, well, I can go ahead and connect the dots and figure out a point between A and B. And a lot of times if you know that location, then you almost don't even have to call because the birds will end up working that direction naturally. It's very hard to get birds off the roost to go a direction that they don't want to go. Uh, it's happened many times where you expect a bird to maybe fly down and work up a certain direction and maybe you find out the next morning that there's hens that were roosted you know over on the next ridge over and that bird will fly down and he'll go that opposite direction it seems like in general if you have a nice food source or you have a nice strut zone which might be like a, an old logging road in the woods where it's nice and open um, and the birds can see a long ways and the hens can see the gobbler strutting from a long ways or a nice open ridge top. Those are areas where it seems like birds like to, to go ahead and strut first thing in the morning. So if you're not a hundred percent sure what direction they're going to go, if you can look at the map and figure out those types of spots, it's usually a good place to start. And then you want to make sure you get in there super, super early, like well before it even starts to get first light. The birds will spook if you get too close and you make too much noise. And yeah, they're, they're up there sleeping on the limb, but remember that throughout the night, there's other things that are walking through the woods. There's deer, coyotes, you know, raccoons, like a whole bunch of stuff that's walking on the ground underneath where those birds are actually roosting. They're not spooking at everything. So if you get in early enough, they're not going to be able to look down unless you have a headlamp on. Don't use your headlamp when you're, you know, getting closer to the roost. Um, if you're getting close, just really slow down. And make sure you're taking your time. You're not cracking sticks. You're, you're sounding like another natural animal in the woods, which is not going to make a whole lot of noise. And then you get set up. And when you make that setup, it's, it's really, you know, important in all of turkey hunting when you do a setup, but especially off the roost to really get comfortable and have a good back cover because you don't necessarily know how long it's going to take for those birds to fly down. They might fly down you know, just before sunrise, they might fly out an, an hour after sunrise. And so you might be sitting there a long time. If there's a good amount of foliage, then you're generally going to have a little bit of buffer, but let's say it's not fully greened up. Those birds can still see a long way sitting up on that limb and they're not going to fly down unless they think that the area they're flying down to is going to be safe. And so you might be sitting there for a long time. If you fidget at all, that might be the thing that gives you away. And those birds are going to fly down a different direction. So you have to be comfortable. You have to be comfortable enough to where you can sit there for an hour and not fidget at all, you know, preferably. And if you are able to get additional cover, if you're sitting next to a tree that is a big enough trunk to where it hides your entire torso, if you have a little bit of deadfall around you, if you got some grass or, or things like that, that all can help. And if you have the sun, you know, preferably coming behind you and, and facing the, the direction of the birds, that's more preferable than if the sun is in your eyes which obviously makes a lot of sense, but, um, it's not always doable when you end up in that, you know, real scenario, just depending on how the, the woods are laying out and how the birds are roosted and how you need to get in there. So those are just things to keep in mind, you know, general rules of thumb. You just got to make sure that 
you get in there quiet, you set up with good cover, you know, the best you have available and you get comfortable and you plan on not moving. Now, once the woods start to wake up, you'll start to, you know, have the woods get a little bit lighter around you and you'll start to get the songbirds making noise. And usually it seems like when the songbirds start making noise, that's when the turkeys could start gobbling. It seems like some days they gobble really, really early, like when it's almost still dark. And sometimes you're like, man, were they not actually roosted here today? Like what happened? Did something spook them at night? And all of a sudden, half hour after light, a bird will fly off, still up in the tree. So it really just depends. But a lot of times it seems like when those songbirds start going, you know that it's time where the birds are awake enough to where they could start gobbling basically at any time. Now, it's a subject of great debate in terms of whether or not you should call to a bird on the roost or not. My experience would be that if you have a really good feeling that you're along that pathway that the birds are likely going to take once they fly down, you probably could be doing yourself more harm than good by trying to call. I've seen it go wrong a lot of times. Um, I don't know if it's whether or not they can put two and two together and figure out that that calling from the ground is just not right. Uh, or if they have any memory of like where the hens flew up around them or what all the details there are, but it, it certainly seems like calling from the ground can come back to bite you. In general, when you do hear advice on calling to birds on the roost, the general consensus is it's oftentimes good to do just light tree yelps. And you can, again, YouTube that to see what the difference is between like a tree yelp and just a normal hen turkey yelp. But just that really light yelp, just to give that bird a sense of, hey, I'm over here. And then if he responds to that in any manner, then you would not make any other noise until his feet hit the ground. And then he would start calling to him, you know, more loudly. Uh, Cause the thought would be that if you're called to him too aggressively on the limb, then what he's expecting is he's just going to sit up there and gobble and he's going to wait for that hen to walk up underneath this tree and where he could see her and then fly down to be with her. But he's not just going to fly down to that bird that's, you know, blindly calling uh, over in the cover. In certain scenarios, calling to a bird aggressively while they're still on the tree, even though it might seem like they stay on the limb longer, could pay off. I've seen it happen with Shane where it's worked before. It usually doesn't happen for me when I try and call to a bird quite a bit on the limb. So for me personally, I seem like I have more success when I don't make any noise at all or make just the light tree yelping until those birds are on the ground and then try to, to make some more noise if they're not already seeming to be going the direction that I'm sitting at. And one extra thing when we're talking about setting up on roosted birds, you don't want to get too close. There's kind of a happy medium and it'll depend on how much cover there is in the woods. If it's late season when you have a lot of foliage up or if it's early season and the trees are just starting to bud. If you get too close, then you really can't move. And the other challenge is that those birds very seldom fly straight down. They don't really just drop out of the tree. A lot of times they'll kind of pitch off and fly at a nice, you know, sweeping downward angle before they hit the ground. And so if you're set up on the edge of a hill on like a point, they might be roosted up on that point, but then they might fly down and land like 80 to a hundred yards away from where that tree was on a side hill. They might just, you know, kind of fly down sort of in a semicircle and end up landing pretty close to where that tree was. It all depends. But if you set up too close to the tree, then you're setting yourself up to where 
there's a good chance the bird might fly right over top of your head and you're really setting yourself up to you can't move much at all and risking that the bird can actually see you set up from its spot up on the limb. Whereas if you're back a ways, yeah, there's more risk that the, the bird doesn't take its travel pattern right past where you are. But the flip side is you have a little bit safer of a setup in terms of that cover and giving the bird a little bit of a buffer for them to be able to come and fly down. A lot of times I'll take notes whenever I can on roosting locations because of those instances, like I mentioned earlier, where you might have a particular property where birds will perpetually roost in the same area. And I'll take notes on how those birds use that and where they go after the fact. And then year over year, those things tend to repeat themselves more often than not to where if you have success in one of those types of areas, you can go in and set up where those birds would typically fly down to and usually have a pretty good outcome. And or if you're scouting during the, the turkey season, like glassing from the road or just you know understanding what field those birds might be wanting to go to or if you don't have agriculture around, but let's say you're hunting in an area where you've gone out at the first light time period every day before the season and you're listening to those birds where they're gobbling on the roost, you're marking those locations down and then you're staying out there for you know an hour or two if you have the, the time luxury to be able to do that before work and listen to where those birds move off to. You know, the smaller public pieces, it seems like oh so often you'll notice that the birds will fly down for the roost and they'll make their way down to private. Now there's no good way that you can set up between where the roosting and where the private is those might not be birds you're, that are worth going after, uh, at least for a roost style of hunt. And it might be better off trying to find a, a different set of birds to be able to actually go in and try to hunt. So let's say you're past the roost period, the birds fly down and, you know, for whatever reason, you didn't get an opportunity. The birds walked and skirted around you or they walked off the other direction. And you can hear the birds gobbling off for a ways, but then eventually they stop gobbling. And, you know, the question is, well, what do you do next? And really the only wrong answer to that is to go home at that point in time. If you spend time out in the woods, then a lot of times you're giving yourself opportunity not only to, to make something happen, but also to hear what those birds are doing throughout the course of the morning. There's plenty of times where it might seem like the birds will go silent after fly down because the frequency goes down so much. Maybe they're gobbling once a minute and they gobble 30 times, then they fly down and they shut up. But then a half an hour later, that bird might gobble once. And then 20 minutes later, he might gobble again. And it seems super spaced out, but if you've already gone home by that point in time, you never would have heard those additional gobbles to see where those birds had moved off to. And so spending time out in the woods and just kind of monitoring the birds and trying to get ahead of them, if you can figure out what direction they're likely headed, that's a lot of times the best option if those birds already have hens, which it seems like most commonly they do. And those birds might spend all morning on a, a ridge side where they're just going back and forth. And there's other times where they might actually just make a linear travel pattern to a particular destination. Could be a field, you know, could be something else. But if you think you have a direction of travel, it doesn't hurt to just look at the map and go ahead and try and figure out a way to make a big loop around and try and get ahead of those birds and then try to set up and it might benefit you to try and do some calling there. But if you find, let's say like a really good spot where it's like, man, these birds are going to show up here. 
maybe you get really dense forest, and then all of a sudden you just got some little two-track logging road that you stumbled up on that you didn't know was there. And there's turkey sign all over it, scratching marks in the, the dirt and the dust. It's like, okay, well, I'll just sit up here and not make any noise because it's likely that these birds are going to end up here, and it's just a matter of time. So that can be a good strategy mid-morning. As it starts to get later in the morning, it seems like you more and more commonly will start to get birds that will gobble on their own. Some days are certainly better than others. Uh, it definitely seems like there are some days where birds just, it seems like there's no birds in the woods. They just don't gobble much at all. And then there's other times where it seems like they gobble quite a bit. And so you might have these higher frequency or lower frequency gobbling days, but as a general rule, it seems like in the later morning, you might have a much better opportunity of hearing a bird that starts to gobble. And when he does, there might be a good chance that he's gobbling on his own at that point. You know, some of these birds that might start gobbling at 1030, 11, close to noon, what that can sometimes mean, especially if it's, you know, mid or late season, is that the hens that they were with up until that point have gone off to nest and they're trying to pull in some additional hens. And that can be a time where they're super vulnerable. So at that point, you want to make sure you can cut off some distance, get closer to that bird, and then do a setup and try to call them in. You know, another option too for the, the early mid-morning stuff is that if the birds aren't gobbling especially and you don't know where any of them are you can't get a good bead to make a direction of travel and try and get ahead of them you can just do some blind calling setups where either you're covering ground and maybe you walk a couple hundred yards and do some calling stand there for a little bit walk another couple hundred yards do the same thing or find a spot where you have a good congregation of turkey sign Seems like a good travel corridor area uh, between areas where you know that turkeys spend a lot of time and just set up there and plan on sitting there for an hour or two hours or whatever. Um, like on a field edge type of spot, that is a good location. But when you have heavier timber, it might be something where you just have like one of those logging road type of scenarios, like a two track in the woods or an area where you have a nice long, uh, let's say, kind of mixed canopy, you know, open grassland slash hardwoods, an area where you have, you know, dust bowls and things like that. You can set up an area like that and kill some time and just call every, you know, 10, 15 minutes, do some yelping, a little bit of cutting. And when the birds aren't gobbling, they can still show up in those types of areas. Now, if it comes to the midday and you haven't had that bird that's just all by himself gobbling his head off all of a sudden again, because he's trying to find another hen, then that would still be my continued strategy would be just to continue to, to blind call throughout the course of the day. And if it's a smaller piece of land, then the stationary blind calling makes more sense. If it's really big country, it might make more sense to just continue to walk and cover a lot of ground and call it as you do. So it really depends on the scenario from that standpoint, but those are usually the two best options. Once you get into that mid afternoon to late afternoon period, They'll still gobble every now and then, but it sure seems like it's on average much, much lower of a frequency than it is early in the, the day. And in general, it just seems like they're much less responsive. They're much harder to call in. It seems like a lot of times they're more interested in just going, walking out in a field and, and pecking away to try and get some food. But if you have a bird that at any time of the day seems like he's receptive, like it definitely doesn't hurt to go and try and make a, a setup. The one exception that I can think of to that is if you are 
pretty close to where the birds are going to fly up anyway, and you know that you're going to have additional time to hunt the next day, it may make sense in that type of a scenario to, instead of making a play on that bird, if you don't exactly know what he's doing and just kind of monitor him and watch him move whatever direction he's going to move and then go to his roosting area, eventually fly up and then try to go in and, you know, do some owl hooting to get an exact location on his, his, uh, roost tree. That was a strategy that Shane and I had done an Iowa hunt last year where we heard a bird gobbling in a field. Gosh, must've been an hour before dark, maybe even an hour and a half before dark. So there's still time at that point where we could have attempted to make a move, but we really didn't know the area. We didn't know the landscape that well. And we didn't know where that bird was going to be heading. We didn't know exactly where he's going to be roosting. So we made the decision to just kind of sit back and, and wait on that bird to see what he was going to do, which, you know, in hindsight, wasn't a terrible decision because you'd have hens that would pop out of this, you know, field occasionally too. And it's like, man, if you try to make a move on him, there's a good chance you spook one of those hens just trying to get into position. Uh, eventually let him fly up and got a pinpoint location on his roost. And the next morning we're in the driver's seat with him 60 yards away gobbling again. So you just got to play those scenarios by ear. But generally speaking, afternoons are going to be much slower. If I'm really low on sleep or let's say I need to get work done at some point in the day, those mid-afternoon time periods are where if I'm going to spend less time in the woods, it's usually when I do. I don't want to take time out of the day kind of mid-morning or even midday. Now I'm going to go over some general turkey hunting tips. And a lot of times these types of tips will get glossed over because people are more focused on the calling tips or the decoy tips or the setup tips. And there's just really like basic general things that, uh, you know, just won't get covered unless you're hunting with somebody who has a lot more experience than you do. And you start to pick up on some of these things. So turkeys have much better eyesight than do say deer or black bears or most of the other things that we hunt. And so even though deer hunting camouflage might be somewhat overrated, I definitely don't think it's overrated for turkey hunting. So wearing a good camouflage that a lot of times it seems like the, the photorealistic stuff does a pretty good job uh, for the spring woods. And you got to remember a lot of times you're going to be sitting up next to a tree with a big tree trunk and maybe it has some front cover so that um, like less open pattern and more just, I guess, photorealistic patterns. It, this is the scenario where they, you know, really kind of stand up and, and do a pretty good job, I feel like. So the patterns like the mossy oaks and the real trees and things like that, Usually wouldn't be my first choice for deer hunting, but I think they do an excellent job in the spring turkey woods. Face mask is also important. Uh, either face mask or face paint, one of the two. You're definitely not going to be doing yourself any favors by just having a nice, you know, bright, shiny face out in the woods. They'll definitely pick up on that. You know, turkey's eyesight is good enough where they don't necessarily have to see movement to know that you're there. They can just look at your structure and be able to say like, oh, that's not right <laughs> and start to move out the other direction. So the extra cover and just, you know, set up, like I mentioned earlier, having some kind of front cover, back cover mix, uh, making sure that you're still are able to, to shoot. So you're not like totally, you know, baked into the weeds, sign at your back if possible. All that stuff definitely seems to help. And like I mentioned before, make sure you can get comfortable. Some guys will carry in turkey vests that have integrated seats that are, you know, 
kind of the the foam based seats. A lot of times I'll bring out just a little inflatable ground seat that I think I got from the the camping company Climate K L I M I T. But there's you know any kind of glassing pads or mats that you can get, or even like a, a little piece of closed cell foam that you can throw in the back of your turkey vest or your pack. That can be helpful to just make sure that you're able to sit in a certain location and even if you got like a little root or you know something a little acorn that you're sitting on it's not gonna dig into you enough after 15 minutes of sitting motionless to where you feel like you need to move or fidget when you have a bird that's coming in range make sure that your shotgun's ready and really make a best effort to move only your eyes they can basically see almost every direction instead of i think if you're if they're a hundred percent facing away. I think technically that's like the only point in time where they can't see you with how their eyes are set up on the side of their heads. And as you notice, they're constantly tilting their head back and forth. So, you know, there's really not a good point in time where you can say like, like on a deer, if they're looking the other direction, you can get back to full draw pretty easily. You really have to be careful with the movement when it comes to turkeys. And so that's why a lot of times when you see guys bow hunting turkeys, they'll be in a blind where it seems like the turkeys don't really care. They don't notice that movement as much. But if the guys are in the woods, almost always you'll see the guy with the shotgun, you know, pretty much already shouldered, ready to go as those birds are coming in. So once that bird peeks his head up over the top of that rise, he's going to be looking for whatever he thought was making that calling. And you don't want to have to move anything really more than your eyes or just, you know, real light movements to get your gun into fine position. If you do have a decoy and you're using a decoy, sometimes that can help take their attention off of you and you can get away with more than you could without a decoy. Hunting without a decoy in that kind of scenario, running a gunning is probably the most critical in terms of like the setup and the movement, etc. And just to give an example of how much a decoy can actually, you know, cover you, I had done a, a bow hunt running gun in the um, a state forest near me and got away with way more than I should have been able to basically heard the birds fly down off the roost. Tom had some hens. They went off the other way, looked at the map, made a big loop around them, ended up finding one of those two tracks running through the state forest, got set up on it through a big half strut decoy right down in the middle of it and went 10 yards into the brush on the other side. Hadn't been set up there for five minutes and the birds started working the way over that rise. The Tom saw the decoy, got locked in on it, marched right down and just started beating it up. And I'm sitting there 10 yards away with my bow in hand and I was able to actually get back to full draw and put an arrow in that bird, which is something that if I had not had, not had that decoy, there's no way, no way I would have been able to do that. So um, decoys can give you some cover. They have the opportunity to bring in birds that otherwise might not have come in close. But as a general rule, again, try to keep your movement to an absolute minimum. And another, I guess, tip that's important, and this kind of has to do somewhat with woodsmanship and keeping your ears open throughout the course of the day. Don't move too fast throughout the woods, if, especially if you're not hearing birds gobbling. It can be kind of, uh, I guess, discouraging to the point where you're not being as careful. You start to let off your guard a little bit and just walk through the woods at a much faster pace. And when you start doing that, then you start jumping birds to where you're spooking them and they fly off, or you might be missing things that are otherwise subtle cues, even if the birds aren't gobbling to let you know that they're in the area. And drumming is a good instance of that. If you get really close to a, a bird, especially in heavy cover where 
he's got some hens with him in early morning. He might just be sitting there drumming and he might not be gobbling, but if all of a sudden you're, you know, walking a little bit, stopping, walking a little bit, then stopping. And you're like, man, is that, is that a turkey drum? And then you sit there and listen a little bit more. You're like, sure enough. And that can give you the location of that bird that otherwise you would have no idea he was there until you eventually, you know, busted him or he, he ran off or flew off. The sound of scratching in the leaves is another one that can be a good giveaway. And if you, you hear turkeys enough and you hunt deer enough, initially they both kind of sound similar. Like a deer walking through heavy leaf cover or turkey scratching in the leaves. But if you hear them both enough, you can start to tell there's definitely a difference between the two. And usually turkey scratching, it seems like it'll be much louder. And you can find patterns to it sometimes. And you know, this is one of the things that the chain keyed me in on was that a lot of times the a turkey scratching, like if it's just one, it might be like, like in little groups of threes that you hear their, um, their feet moving through the leaves. Whereas, you know, a deer just walking steadily through the forest almost kind of sounds a little bit more like a person walking through the woods. And so you can pick up a little subtle cues like that. And if you, if it's just like a mess of sounds and you're like, man, it's just a whole bunch of leaves going, it might be multiple turkeys all, you know, walking through the leaves and, and making scratching noises. So if you hear leaves scratching, don't assume it's a squirrel. Treat it as if it could be actual turkeys in the woods until you know otherwise. If you are set up on a bird and you're calling to him, and it seems like he's interested, he's responding to your calls, maybe it even seems like he got close to a certain point, but then he got silent. One of the most tempting things to do as a turkey hunter is eventually to just, you know, give up and think, I don't know, well, he must have did something wrong, but he stopped coming in. A lot of times, just some a little, a little additional patience, if you don't think you did anything to spook that bird, he might still be on his way in. He might just be taking his time. He might be doing is uh, walking quietly. Sometimes those birds can just slip in quietly after 10 or 15 minutes of just total silence. So ensuring that you have some patience on those setups can definitely make a world of difference. And that's, again, one of the things that, especially if you're new, is one of the hardest natural instincts to overcome because your your mind is telling you like, ah, oh, it's over. I blew this one. It's, it's time to go set up on the next one. But just give it a little bit of extra time. Another thing you can do is be on the lookout for actual turkey sign. This is especially true if you're in an area where you're running and gunning, you're trying out new places, and you're not sure really which places are exceptional, which places are not that great, which ones have normal numbers of turkeys. If you're on the lookout for number one, tracks, number two, droppings, number three, turkey scratching in the leaves, and probably a good thing to to look at from like a size perspective would be just some pictures on YouTube or, or Google. They're bigger scratching marks than you'd see from something like a squirrel. Sometimes you see scratching in the leaves and if it's like a smaller area, it could be, you know, squirrel digging through the leaves, but if it's much bigger, it could be turkeys. And so looking at pictures and trying to see the size differential might give you a good idea on those. Same thing with tracks, looking at photo, you know, size differences between a tom track and a hen track because a tom track is going to be much bigger than a hen track will be. And a lot of times, especially on that middle toe, you'll be able to see it like segmented, whereas a hen track might just be the three toes and it's just all kind of solid in the, the mud or the sand or whatever the track is left in. Other things that you can certainly look for 
when you're looking for sign would be drag marks from a tom's uh, strutting if you have a soft ground you, you'll actually be able to see where their wingtips drag into the dirt and then you know that that was a place where uh, tom was strutting and sometimes they're not just going to be in straight lines sometimes they might you know kind of curve back and forth as that tom is strutting and he's kind of you know turned to the right turned to the left another one is kind of related to the the calling aspect and knowing when to call when not to call a lot of times you read articles about over calling or not calling enough and a lot of times the you know articles and things like that will focus on that but not necessarily more in the terms of knowing when to call versus when not to call and one of the times that i think is worth not trying to call is when you're just trying to get a location on a bird or keep tabs on a bird a lot of times it might not necessarily work in your favor to just constantly do turkey calling every time you're trying to get that bird's attention and get in the gobble. If you can get him to gobble to something else other than a turkey call, that's usually going to give you a better advantage because number one, he's not thinking that's a hunter. And number two, you're not unintentionally going to draw that bird away from where you were just trying to figure out where he was at. So if we know a bird is up on a certain ridge, and we're trying to make a, a big circle to get around, but then still want to keep tabs on him to know if he's still there or not. At certain locations, we'll fire off like a, you know, most commonly it'll be an owl hooter. That'd be like the number one thing to try. Crow calls are another popular daytime locator, though I personally have not had as great of luck with a crow call as compared to an, a barred owl hoot. And so I like using that one. Um, it'll work throughout the course of the day. A lot of times people think of a, an owl call as early morning or late evening. But again, another thing I learned from Shane, you can use that thing any time of day and get a bird to gobble. We've had him gobble at, you know, two in the afternoon to a, a barred owl hoot. But then that allows you to use that locator call to be able to make your moves, get set up on the bird, not let them know that there's a hunter in the woods, not let them, you know, think, oh, there's a henway over there. I'm going to start walk, work in that direction. And then all of a sudden you get to where you were going to set up and you hear him gobble from the direction you just came from. You can make those moves slip into position. And then once you're ready to set up and you're actually in there nice and tight, then you can start the actual hen calling itself. When you're first starting out in an area, make sure to mark down and take notes on all the things that you're finding. So all the sign I was talking about, the droppings, the tracks, the dust bowls, the strut marks, the scratching, the roost locations, the strut zones that you do find, and just keep continually marking that. It might seem like it's a, a bit of a mess at first, but over time, you start to put together the puzzle pieces to learning at least where turkeys like to go and where they don't spend as much time. And if you get into an area where you, you know you're going to be hunting that place over and over and over again, learning that information about the landscape and how the turkeys like to use it a lot of times will pay dividends as the, the years move on. You know, you definitely don't need to have as much information, I feel like, as I would feel, you know, comfortable having deer hunting. I feel like deer hunting, I really like to have a very good layout of the landscape. Whereas turkey hunting, it seems like you can just show up to someplace you've never been at and you might jump in there and get on a hot bird and, you know, 20 minutes out of leaving your truck, you have one on the ground. And that does, doesn't really happen deer hunting. It can happen turkey hunting. That said, I still feel like the more you're keeping tabs on those types of locations that you do find, it's definitely going to work to your benefit in the long haul. 
And we'll talk on gear a little bit too. One of the big questions is turkey vest versus turkey pack. Ultimately, it's going to be a personal preference decision. I personally like using a vest because the vest contains all of my turkey hunting specific gear. So I don't have to mix it back and forth with my deer hunting gear and taking stuff out of one, putting it in the, into the other. The vest can have an integrated seat uh, if you desire. My vest, I've taken it off and I just carry that inflatable ground pad so it doesn't take up a whole lot of space. It's not flopping on my legs. And if the ground is wet, that thing is waterproof so I can sit on top of it. If I want to inflate it, it's like two breaths and it's nice and inflated and still you know pretty comfortable. So I prefer using the vest personally. I can throw my rain gear in the back pouch. I can throw a big decoy in the back pouch. I can throw a dead turkey in the back of the pouch. So it has a pretty good level of versatility. When it comes to clothing, we touched on the camo, but bug protection is a big deal too. I got some of the, the newer Sika stuff with the insect shield this year that I'm pretty excited to be able to use. But prior to that, I had always treated my stuff with permethrin, uh, the pants, the the tops, even my socks and my boots, I would spray those with permethrin sometimes a couple times throughout the season just to make sure that the, you know, you're doing the best job as possible to keep the ticks off of you as well as the mosquitoes. For boots, make sure you're using whatever boots suit the habitat and terrain. If you're walking through areas that have a lot of, you know, boggy stuff every now and then, then maybe you want to be wearing some knee-high rubber boots. If you're hunting a lot of hills, then lace-up hiking boots might be a better bet. When it comes to a shotgun, and granted, you can absolutely hunt, you know, turkeys with bows as well. I don't do that as much anymore. That's how I started, but I've since transitioning to run and gun turkey hunting with a shotgun, I'm not sure that I'll go back. It's just a lot more fun for me personally. But with the advent of these more expensive TSS loads, you can get a lot more pallet count and a lot better, you know, sectional density in those little tiny tungsten pellets to where you don't need a 12 gauge to be, you know, necessary for hunting turkeys. I actually bought a youth 20 gauge for my wife to be able to hunt with. And I actually prefer that gun over my 12 gauge for my own turkey hunting because it's lighter, it's easy to carry, it's easy to maneuver. And those little number nine TSS loads are more than adequate for any region that I would be able to attempt to shoot a turkey at. I also like the red dots. I have used beads in the past and obviously they work just fine, but I do feel like I was a little bit more precise in placing my shots, especially with some of those tighter patterning loads with the red dot. I noticed that with just a normal bead on the front of my 12 gauge that I would use for bird hunting, a lot of times I would shoot the birds low. And I think the reason for that is because uh, it was hard for me to put the bead directly on top of where I wanted to hit. And so a lot of times just subconsciously, I'd be sort of putting the bead underneath where I wanted to hit so that I was able to see both the spot I wanted to hit and the bead at the same time. Uh, I guess you could maybe equate it to like locking low when you're shooting an archery target. Uh, but I would end up shooting birds pretty low in the neck and even like the upper chest area a lot of times with the bead versus with the red dot. I pretty much hit them exactly where I'm aiming or exactly where I want to hit. And you don't have to be exactly perfect in your cheek weld on the gun. You can shoot the gun left or right handed and be a little bit in kind of an awkward position and put the red dot right where you need it to go, be able to pull the trigger. So if you can afford it, I definitely think the, the red dot is worth the investment. And I would say 
if you want to use a sub gauge like a 20 gauge or you know even a 410 a tss it's a great way to go but uh you can certainly still use a 12 gauge as well and likely be able to save some money if you're just going to be going to a um, a more normal turkey load like a Longbeard XR or something like that. Lastly, we'll touch on calls, which for some people might be, you know, one of the first things to talk about with when it comes to turkey hunting. But I think if you do a pretty good job at the woodsmanship side of things, that can go a long ways. And calling can go a long ways as well. I don't know that necessarily one is better than the other. I think it's good to have a mixture of both because there's certain scenarios where calling definitely seems like it gets the job done for you. And there's other scenarios where it seems like calling wasn't really a major impact, but being in the right spot at the right time was. So the main, I guess, three types of calls would be your mouth calls or diaphragm calls, pot calls, which you might also hear called, you know, just slate calls, although not all of them are slate, uh, as well as box calls. Box calls are probably the easiest to use. And if you get a good one, they can sound really good. If you get a, a cheap store-bought one, it might sound okay or it might not sound great. It might even sound more like a Jake Yelp. The thing with a box call is that you want to make sure that it's conditioned well. And to condition a box call, you would there's like these little red pieces of chalk that you can buy for them. And you take the lid off the box and you can just you know put some of that chalk on the backside of the paddle, put the thing back on. And then with that fresh coating of chalk on there, you can run the call and run it one way, run it the other way, take the paddle back off and look at the back of it. And you should be able to see little witness marks in the chalk that almost look like angel wings in that chalk dust. And that would allow you to know that the, you know, you're running the call well and that the call is, is shaped, I guess, appropriately. So that's something to look at, obviously, as well as just the, you know, the sound. What does the sound sound like? And don't lift the paddle up between yelps. If you're yelping on a a box call, you can leave the paddle down the whole time and just move the paddle side to side. I'm not a huge fan of box calls, even though I think that they definitely can have a time and a place. Some guys love them. Um, I remember watching a custom call maker, Eric Rice, here in the, the Twin Cities build one and listening to that call and the, the work that went into it. I th- it was just awesome. Uh, I have a couple of box calls personally. Most of them were cheaper store-bought varieties that uh, some of them sound pretty decent, especially when I adjust the tension to get a you know that nice high to low um, roll off. It's probably, like I said, the easiest call to get that, that nice turkey sounding tone, but they're more bulk and they can be a little bit harder to keep quiet when you just have them shoved into a turkey vest. Some vests do a pretty good job of keeping them constrained. Uh, some don't. Generally, they're not also gonna do well in wet environments, although there are some box calls that have waterproof paddles that you can get for them. So that's something that's worth looking into. When it comes to the pot calls, you've got your choices of materials. You can get them in slate, you can get them in glass, you can get them in crystal, anodized aluminum, copper, a whole bunch of different choices. I'd say it seems like the most common would be slate, glass, or crystal. And for me, it seems like I can get the loudest sound out of a glass call. The slates have a little bit different tone to them, but it seems like I don't get quite as much volume. I like using just the, you know, the big single glass call because I get the most volume out of it. And 
especially in some of those midday time periods when you're just trying to get a ton of volume and let that sound really carry and really reach, you can get those pot calls to run and, and do cuts and yelps to where it almost hurts your ears because it gets so loud. I don't usually feel the need to call as quietly with them because if a bird is close enough to where I'd want to call quietly, usually at that point in time, I'm just using the diaphragm mouth call, which is the one I would talk about next. The one thing I'll say before I leave the pot call discussion is just that if you get a call that you like, it's good to have a couple of different striker options to be able to play around with and see which ones sound the best to you. Um, different strikers will give you different sounds. They'll give you different volumes and some of them are just going to be easier to run than others. And just like with the box calls, it's good to condition the, the pot calls as well. And you would do it a little bit differently. It's going to depend a little bit on what the material is that you're using. If it is something like a slate, then maybe use one of those little green Brillo pads to rough up the surface just a little bit. If it's like an anodized aluminum, then a lot of times just, you know, wiping the, the dust off of it essentially with a, a clean cloth might be all that's required. With the, the glass call that I mentioned, one of the things that works really well is, is basically just a conditioning stone. You'll find them called, if you type in pot call conditioning stone, into Google, you'll be able to pull up what one of these things looks like. And all you do is just get that location, you know, toward the edge of the, the circle on the pot call that you'd actually want to be able to run your striker. And you just go side to side, uh, back and forth and, and making the really, you know, kind of deep scratches into the, the surface of the call itself. I'd recommend looking up videos on conditioning a pot call to get a better idea of this before you just, you know, try and interpret what those words sound like and just go to town on it. But that really is a, a key, key step to where, you know, as silly as it sounds, when I used to, you know, start turkey hunting, I'd buy a, a pot call in the store and not realize that you needed to condition it and just assume that you should be able to take the striker that came in the box and be able to make great sounding turkey sounds on that call. But being able to condition it makes a big difference. And a lot of times I'll carry that conditioning stone with me out in the woods and we'll actually condition it at the start of the day. Uh, if I'm not liking the sound sometime throughout the course of the day, I might take that stone out and just give it a nice fresh scraping and then get that sound to ring out nice and crystal clear again. So just as with the box call, make sure that you look up some of the maintenance for those to be able to get the, the best out of them. You'll be able to find details on how to best hold the calls as well to be able to let that sound resonate to the best of its natural capabilities. And the last type of calls that I'll go over, and there's a bunch of, you know, sub call types like the, um, little pillbox calls and things of that nature. But the diaphragm calls would kind of round out the big three for me. Um, ah, I guess there's wing bones too. Uh, if you want to look up wing, wing, wing bone calls, Catman outdoors on YouTube, he's got a few, how-to videos on them. He uses them all the time. Uh, would definitely go recommend checking his videos out on those. Uh, I haven't used one a whole lot, so I'll go back to the diaphragm calls because I know a little bit more. But with these, they are definitely the most challenging to learn, but I feel like they also have a ton of versatility. I mean, you listen to the guys who are really good, and it's like there's no sound they can't make with one of those diaphragm calls. They can sound like you know, a hen, they can sound like a Jenny, they can sound like a Jake, they can sound like a Tom, they can gobble on it, they can 
do coyote howling on it. They can make all these little, you know, just quiet little pips and squeaks and all the way up to just, you know, almost ear piercing yelps and sharp cutting. And it's really incredible what a skilled caller can do on just one of those standard mouth calls. What I would recommend doing if you have one of these calls either now or you don't, but you're intending on doing it is watch the mouth call mechanics video on YouTube. That'll teach you how to get the sound, how to get the high pitch to roll off into the low pitch, but then also be able to figure out what type of calls and what the cuts on those calls are definitely going to, are generally going to do in terms of, uh, allowing your natural voice to be able to push the air one way or the other and get a effortless sound instead of trying to force it all the time. So that's definitely something that's worth looking into as you're starting your journey. One thing you can do also with the mouth calls is keep some toothpicks with you, whether it's just in your truck or like wherever you're going to be storing those calls when not in use. If you use the calls, you get them all wet with saliva. And then if you just put them away in the box, and when those calls dry out, a lot of times the top reed of latex will actually stick to the middle reed. And then you're not going to be able to get that rasp because the call is not going to be able to, you know, vibrate as, as freely as it needs to. But if right after you're finished using that call, you take a little piece of, you know, broken off the end of a toothpick and just slide it in between that top reed and that middle reed before putting it away. And once that call dries out, the top and middle reeds are still separated and then when you take that toothpick out, put the call back in your mouth and start calling again, you're still going to get that natural sound to be able to come out right off the bat. So I think that kind of covers the basics. As you can tell, I mean, that was basically an hour and I felt like we didn't go too in, in the weeds into any particular topic, but just kind of brush the surface on a lot of these things that could certainly be helpful from a beginner perspective. So if you have any additional questions, uh, please feel free to reach out to me, shoot me a message on Instagram and I'll get back to you. But hopefully this episode helps serve as a useful resource for some people that are getting into it. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow the Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.